Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Ibanez Guitars and Basses. Ibanez strives to make high-quality, cutting-edge musical instruments that any musician can afford and enjoy. Visit Ibanez.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joel Wanasek, and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. Flying solo, Joel and Joey are not with us because they're training dolphins tonight. With me is a special guest, Mr. Steve Lagudi, who is a pretty uh, prolific live sound engineer slash producer. Um, right now, he's uh, with Machine Head, not currently on tour with Machine Head, but uh, you're Machine Head's dude, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's one way to put one way to put it. And uh, those of you who are subscribers to Nail the Mix, if uh, you were with us in August of 2016 when Joel mixed Machine Head, Steve came on to discuss the recording of the Machine Head track because he recorded a whole bunch of it while on the road. But before we get to Talking about Machine Head, I want to talk about you some, and I want to talk about just live sound, because, you know, I've been a studio engineer for like 15 years now, and I've only had a few opportunities to do live sound, and I fucking hated every minute of it. Hated it. Like, and I'll tell you why I hated it. I hated it because there's no time. There's, I mean, obviously, if you're working for a machine head, you can sound check and oh. <laughs> and sometimes, right? And not as much as you think. <laughs> okay, well then that goes back to what I was just saying, which is there's no fucking time. And so, like in the studio, where you know, you if I want something better, I just stay later. Um, if you know, I make time, I sleep less. You don't really have that option and. That makes me insane. And then dealing with acoustics of a venue and the volumes, it's like, what? Why? Why do you do this to yourself? Yeah, it, it is a ch- you know, it's a challenge. I mean, I kind of started out as a studio guy. I mean, that was kind of the whole thing. It was like, all right, sit there, you know, to work on a snare or a kick drum for seven days. You know, you, you know, everybody went down that rabbit hole, and. You know, growing up in New York and I had like a studio there with like one of the most earliest versions of Pro Tools, you know, recording like like bands like Amur. I mean, they were in the same rehearsal, you know, building as us. And I basically bought two rooms, knocked the wall down, made a control room out of it and bought like a Mac D328, a bunch of, you know, microphones and a G3 like that I could maybe run two plugins on. You know, how to audio suite everything in and, you know, and, and that's really kind of what it was. It was getting knocks on the door. Hey, we'll give you 500 bucks for five songs. Sure, I'll fuck your shit up before I do mine. So why not? But but the thing was, like, it, I was doing a little more of that. And then these guys were like, kind of like, hey, dude, we're playing Bob's Bar down the street. You want to come and mix us? Because everybody was really like jonesing out, like on the clicky kick drums, you know, like when you went and saw like small bands or like the whole local band scene, you know, front of house engineers in these venues, you know, they didn't necessarily know like the sounds to, you know, for, you know, metal and things like that. So, you know, you just crank in the fucking, you know, the high shelf filter out of the three band EQ that you do get on the console that just, you know, that's what everything, you know, how it really kind of happened for me. But yeah, everything you touched on, like not having time and, you know, being just kind of thrown into the mix, like, 
you know, all pun intended there, but that's, it was exciting. It's exciting. So that's actually the part you like about it. I do. You know, I, it's like, there's not a lot of guys that do both live and studio. So for me, it's like, you know, the road can get a little rough and, you know, doing a three hour show every night and, you know, starting at eight in the morning until two o'clock in the morning, you know, you know, four or five days a week and it just not having time for anything. I love it. And, but you get burnt of it. So to be able to kind of go back indoors and sit in that same chair every day, sleep in the same bed, whether it's your own or a hotel room, you know, whatever, and eat a shitload of takeout. I mean, to change things up a bit. So, like, I kind of do like a hybrid of the two, like with, you know, my career. It's like a lot of things that I learn in the studio, I try to bring live and then vice versa. So for me, like, I embrace it. And that's really kind of how I cut my teeth, man, was, uh, you know, touring with like God forbid and stuff, you know, we were always like the second or the third in the lineup. So I never, you know, had a chance to sound check. And, you know, usually the opening band maybe had like three minutes before doors. So I'd be walking up to the desk and just like doing my thing. And, and that was it, you know, setting up mics, doing the changeover, coming out front with like two minutes to fucking set time and you just go. And, you know, it, like it was exciting. And that's kind of like how people started to hear my work was like, what the fuck? This dude's like never getting a sound check. And he's he's shitting on the headlining band who has their own console. Like what this 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 isn't right. You know, like what's going on here? So, you know, that's kind of how it all happened for me. But you know, I love it, dude. You know, how, what do you attribute that to? Um, like how what did you do to get better at live sound? Because, <laughs> because I mean, and I'm being serious, because, like, if I, if someone says, how do you get better at mixing, I know I, I can, like, give you a detailed, a detailed step-by-step of how to get better at mixing, no matter how good you are, unless you're, like, you know, unless it's, like, someone like Rand, Randy Staub. I don't know what to tell someone like Randy Staub, but, like, with live sound, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Well, there's a there's a few ways to do it. You know, it, it's like I could kind of lump it into, you know, what we as studio guys like tell people, especially subscribers and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's like you got to know your you know, you got to know the roadmap where you want to go. Like, what do you want it to sound like? And, you know, when I started doing it, like, in a you know, a buddy of mine who really kind of pushed me into it. I mean, this is like my whole career story could be a whole fucking podcast on its own. But so I was just basically sitting in this shithole by my, you know, by my house, you know, a little 16 track mix wizard. And as I was sitting there, it was just like, all right, well, if I'm here, even though I'm not liking the music that's being played was, well, I'm going to make it sound good for me. And I didn't have any formal training. So it was just turning knobs literally until it just kind of sounded good. But I knew in my head where I wanted it to go. Now, the road to getting there took time, you know, just experience trying different things, not being afraid to fuck up. You know, I mean, that's the cool thing about live. It's like if you make a mistake, you know, it's not in the world forever. But well, maybe nowadays with YouTube <laughs> and stuff. But um, but, you know, what I mean, you just you got to kind of try to push the boundaries and shit and and just just try different things. And like for me, it's like I think I stand out from a lot of the other, you know, front of house guys is, you know, everybody kind of uses the same microphones and they're doing the same thing. Like maybe not a lot of EQ, but I mean, if you looked at my EQs and stuff, dude, I'm carving the shit out of things, man. And like I just didn't learn the right way. So it was just 
it's just trial and error until I kind of found like what worked for me. And ultimately that just happens to be what everybody thinks sounds good, you know? So let's talk about your carving the shit out of things. So tell me more about that because I'm used to carving the shit out of things on a graphic EQ, uh, you know, like waves plugins. Yeah. Um, but what, what do you, when you're doing that live, what do you, what, maybe talk through some instruments and like what are the areas that you what are you looking for that you end up carving sure well well before i really start treating you know anything channel wise or whatever it's i tune the pa you know i mean obviously you know i've been playing the same five songs like that's my playlist that i use to tune a pa and i i do a lot of like a lot of scooping like 160 is like almost completely taken out you know 253 you know like around the low mids i leave like 200 kind of in there and stuff like that but also then in the top end you know like 1.25 and 3.15 and 6.3 like those kind of abrasive frequencies you know i'm like taking out two or three dbs in the upper mids and stuff like that but so that's kind of like where I start, you know, so to give more perspective for the studio guys out there, that would basically be treating your master bus like with whatever processing you have ahead of time, whether it's your compression and stuff. But so like top down top, that's called top down mixing. Yeah, exactly. It's but I'm just kind of doing it with the EQ because I just know the way I EQ channels and and the way I drive desks hard, like that kind of just cleans it up for me. Like clarity to me in a mix is everything, and I'm able to get it. Uh, whether I'm doing napalm death in like a shitty venue, you know, with the sh- you know speakers on sticks, all the way up to a hundred thousand people on like a multi-million dollar PA system, I'm uh, it's the same approach like every time. So that's kind of where I start. But then as far as channels, obviously the kick drum's got to get scooped out in the low mids and stuff. But but I also do that with like the toms, like really really with the toms. I'm a big guy of reductive EQ. And the reason why I do that is, you know, you take the low mids and the high mids and, you know, and you're scooping, you know, like on my Midas, you know, I'm scooping out like 16 dB at each band. Well, I'm allowed now to, you know, bring up, you know, the input gain and really bring the signal up. And you're then at that point, you're just left with what you want. So you have the lows and then you just crank the shit out of five or six, seven, eight K, depending upon the size of the tom. So, you know, floor toms, I'm treating them just like kick drums. You know, I mean, again, scooping the low mids out. Uh, bass guitar, it's the same thing, man. Like I'm scooping somewhere from like 140 to like 250, you know, know it all kind of depends on like what it is but uh, but boosting that 1.25 then back on the base and then you're saying to yourself well wait a minute if you're carving it out of the pa why are you cranking the shit out of it on the channel you know because it's like i just want to say hey top end of the bass guitar you're living there this is for you and everything else is just kind of pulled out of the way with the overall mix sound guitars um for the most part are pretty flat rolled off to 100 Dip a two here or there at around 212. Most people think 212 is the good shuggy frequency, but you just take that out a little bit. And then, uh, well, for Machine Head, uh, <laughs> 6K, <laughs> all, about 6 dB of 6K with kind of a narrow, you know, kind of filter on that. That, like, just, I don't know, dude, that just melts fucking faces. But 
you know, I, I fuck with that during the show. Like, I'll bring it up and down a little bit, you know, between 3 and 6 dB. Like, if Rob or Phil are, you know, busted out into a solo, there's certain notes that, you know, the 6K might just stab you in the ear. But I, I know where those are, you know. So I'm, I'm definitely, like, you know, massaging the mix with EQ, not just, you know, the dynamics and shit. So, but, yeah, I mean, carving. But the whole trick to it is just being able to really kind of you know, bring your gains up. Like a lot of people like, dude, how do you get your fucking drums? Like so big, clear, powerful, but not clip the PA. And, and that's, that's the trick. Like really, you know, 24 mics alone, just on the drum kit. One of them is a fucking, uh, is a dynamic and the rest are condensers. And people are like, you're out of your fucking tree. Like, you know, like, are you crazy? Like 12 microphones just like on cymbals, <laughs> you know, but, but you know, if you take the whole, like, well, let me take a step back. Like, when we play, Machine Head will play anywhere and everywhere, which is great. So, like, we'll go into, like, these shitty clubs, right? And I don't really give an input list now because, you know, I have my own stuff or whatever. So, you know, you get these local sound guys or whatever, and they're like, dude, like, I never use overheads in here. I'm like, well, congratulations. I'm, I'm not using overheads. I'm using <laughs> underheads. Yeah, well, you don't need it in this room. And I go, well, this is then when I become a dick. So I'm sure this is probably one of your questions, like why live sound guys are assholes. But uh, <laughs> again, another total podcast. But no, I'll be a dick to somebody. You know, I'll be just like, dude, like, I appreciate that. But like, you don't know what it is that I'm trying to achieve and, like, you know, what the result is. Well, in my experience, it's the local guys that are the dicks, not the touring guys. Well, it depends. And, you know, I mean, if you get a good local guy and, you know, it, it, you know, then it's great. It makes your life easy. And I've done dumb my system down to have very little, you know, uh, requirements for my local guy. They probably make more in a day than I do. And they have to like wrap up five sublines and run out <laughs> a pair of fiber lines to front of house. Like literally, that's their whole day. Like everything else, I take care of. But now I have these guys that be like, dude, you don't want to use overheads in here. I'm like, well, first off, number one, I'm using underheads, and the reason why I'm doing that is for a couple of reasons. Like, what's the loudest thing? And I question people. You know, I make them look like an idiot. Like, think about this. And I'll be like, well, what's the loudest thing on this on the fucking drum kit? The snare drum. Right. Okay, great. So if I have a microphone completely 180 degrees, you know, with the front to back rejection there, the snare drum's not gonna be in my fucking overheads. Dave McLean and a lot of metal drummer well, some metal drummers hit really fucking hard. And most people don't realize that a pair of overheads are room mics. Now I don't know what venues, you know, these people are going to, but stages sound like shit. So why the fuck do I want to amplify that? And, you know, that's or that's a key difference there between studio and live recording, because in studio recording, our overhead sound creates a lot of the drum sound. So we want good sounding drums in the overheads, whereas you're trying to get rid of them sometimes don't get me wrong it's like it's not every you know not every band that i'm gonna do the underhead technique it, it you know like if it's like a rock like kind of jazz kind of thing you know what i mean like yeah then you can kind of go for it but nine times out of ten dude like most people are using overheads to capture the cymbals so because the snare drum is so loud and what you got to do to really kind of get the cymbals to shine and cut through you know with what's going on up there 
it's just, you're getting so much more of the, you know, you're getting all the stuff that you really don't want to hear what you're trying to get, you know? So it just, it never worked for me, but also localization. So like when you sit there and you sit out in front of house and, you know, Dave goes through the symbols and stuff like that, you hear it. Like I'm a psychopath. I even fucking mic up the splash symbols. Okay. So, but you, you can hear it. But now the reason why I keep them so close is I don't have to gain them up that much. And like I said, with the front to back rejection, you know, having the mic, you know, you know, the opposite direction, the snare drum, my overheads are like pristinely clean. Like, you know, like you don't hear all the noise, like the noise floor is very, very low. Like even when I go back to listen to the multi-tracks, like I still scratch my head and I go, I can't get over how clean these overheads sound. It sounds like they're in an isolated studio, you know? So that's kind of like what I like to do. And, and then when these house guys, they, they hear the mix and they're just like, holy shit, I'm blown away that there's 12 microphones on all your cymbals and it sounds that good. And I'm like, yeah, see, I have a reason for doing things now. Go fuck off in traffic or something, you know? But <laughs> I, I like, but no, they, seriously, because then they're like, oh my God, that's brilliant. And I'm like, well, I'm not really reinventing the wheel here. It's just tasting, taking basic mic techniques and understanding audio and acoustics and stuff like that. You, you know what I mean? So, you know, it's just, I do things just out of necessity. That's really what it is. You know, I think that that makes perfect sense. And you know, what's interesting is I've tried underheads in the studio and I haven't been too stoked on them, but I could see a hundred percent why you would use them in that situation that you're talking about. I love it actually in the studio too. And I, like this, people are like, well, what do you use? Like, well, live, my whole stage is Audio Technica, except for one microphone. That's the 91s inside the kick drum. And trust me, I'm giving them shit to make me, you know, design a 91. <laughs> but um, I use the ATM 450. It's a, it's a very cheap microphone, but it sounds killer. And that is like the most popular microphone on my stage. So every single cymbal, uh, the ride uh, and my snare bottom like that like that's my secret like to my snare drum sound there was like dude how do you get that snare drum sound it's it's like an 80 20 it's like 80 percent bottom 20 percent top <laughs> i swear to god and a lot of gating you know to really kind of get that crack you know i believe it uh we on the last nail the mix we did with taylor larson he he talked about bottom snare a lot and he said a lot of guys hate on it, but he loves having a ridiculous amount of bottom snare because that's what identifies it as a snare drum. Yeah, you know, and like I'm using the ATM 23 on the top, which is similar to the 25. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, there's a lot of studio guys that use that on toms. Um, and I love, you know, I love the 23, but I have the mic uh, like coming in. You know, off like all right. So if you have the snare drum in front of you, the, like the microphone's like pointing basically towards the nutsack of Dave. So it's not pointed at the center. You know, like I know, like you full sail kids and like, oh, this is how you put a microphone on a snare drum. Well, whatever, move shit around and see what you like. So with having the mic there, it's like I get a lot of the body out of it. So you know, you're not going to get a lot of that fucking top end crack out of a snare drum. You can crank it all day long and all you're going to do is just add more hi-hat in there. You know, it's just, it's going to sound like shit. So for the most part, the snare top is completely flat. Like I don't even add that bump at 200. Like most people do. Like it's crazy. I mean, just with that mic there on the side, I get so much of the body that I can pretty much leave it flat. Maybe 
he pulled like 540, you know, somewhere in that mid-range. Just, I mean, like a DB or two. Like, even if I just took the EQ out, like, you probably wouldn't hear it. But it's the bottom, dude. I, like, roll off to, like, 160 or so. And then I take a fucking shell filter from, like, 3k or just like up like six eight sometimes 10 12 tb depending upon you know who the drummer is and, and like a fast gate on it you know so like you hear that fucking crack dude you know and people are just like it melts faces you know i've hey you know but snare bottom dude don't don't be don't be shy on it people never use it i never get that it gets lost i i know you one of my favorite Audio Technica mics, by the way, is an A3000, AE3000. Totally, man. And Those are my, my floor tom mics. The, I love it as a snare bottom. And actually, I've, I've, man, it's usable for so many things. I've used it yep. to mic under, not underheads, but under close mic cymbals, like splashes and stuff, splashes and chinas. I've used it successfully as a bottom snare mic. I've even used it successfully as a top snare mic, but like maybe two feet off pointed down at the snare it's a very very versatile cool little microphone yeah i mean and not like to turn this into an at thing but like the 5100 believe it or not the 3000 and the 5100 which is like the pencil connection that kind of looks like the the 81 it's the same it's the same diaphragm in there so i actually use those on my hi-hats and uh it's killer you know the 3000 I used to use it on the snare top when I was doing God Forbid. I think it was more just Corey's snare drum. There's, it was just a little boxy for me. But, yeah, I mean, you're right. That mic is completely versatile. I mean, it works great. Like actually on, uh, like, even electric guitar cabinets. Um, I love it on toms, it's, but the floor toms for me, dude, like, uh, I'm not kidding you. The floor tom mic, that 3000, is probably a pinky's width off of the floor tom. You know, people are like, you're out of your mind. Well, why do you keep it that close? And I'm like, okay, here we go again. Audio 101. So I can keep, you know, <laughs> the bleed down. But, you know, because like I said, I'm scooping so much out of the low mids and stuff. I'm able to bring the gain up. And people are like, well, well you don't really get a lot of stick attack. Bullshit. Are you kidding me? Like a, a like couple of DB of 6K, man. You know, plenty of stick attack. But this is where you could use proximity effect for your favor. Like, if you want to deep, I love old school deep toms, you know, I mean, I love using subwoofers and I love, you know, melting fucking, you know, people's faces when, when, when Dave goes down those toms and he gets to those two floor toms, it's like, you know, you're feeling it. It's like a kick drum to me. So that's where I'm using the proximity effect, you know, to my benefit. So, you know, it's, that's the thing. Most people think like. All right, they read the book. Like proximity effect is a bad thing, you know. It's like no, like phase can be a good thing if you use it right, you know. Like you just, it's it's Prox- just how you do it. Proximity effect is a thing, it and, is. and you can use it well or not. Absolutely, totally, you know. But you know, it's like I, I just, I don't, you know, maybe because I didn't learn audio, like you know, technically and all this other stuff. But, you know, when I kind of started getting going into all this shit and I started like really learning it because I'm like, wait a minute, I'm on to something here. I I started to see things like I was able to bridge the gap between things that I was doing and then learning the technical. It was like, oh, okay, (laughs) that's what the phase button is doing. It doesn't just make it sound better. You know what I mean? So it's just you got to just be aware of it to be able to use this stuff and you know and like i I keep saying this again i'm not reinventing the wheel here it's like 
this is just stuff that I've been doing for almost 20 years now. And it's like, I have my sound and that, that's like a thing. <laughs> so let's talk about guitars some, because I feel like dialing guitars live, heavy guitars, heavy rhythm is so tough because you add too much gain, it's immediately noise. It gets noisy, you want more clarity, it starts to get harsh as fuck. You want more body out of it, it becomes a total woofy mess. And in the studio, it's hard too. You have to be very, very precise with your guitar EQ. Like, let's let's talk about some of those challenges, man. Yeah, you know, and it's just, just before I jump into that, what's really funny, it's like, I fear the studio sometimes because it's like, fuck, man, you know, you can't get it right, you know, and you just spend forever doing it. And like all my friends that, you know, do some of the biggest records in the world and they're like, are you kidding me? They're like, you have it harder than we do. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, you know, you're in a different acoustical environment every day. It's a different, pe like, like we're in a controlled environment. So like, don't be afraid of it. But um, yeah, you're right. Getting, getting guitars, is is tough i mean i am not gonna lie about that i mean for obviously heavy aggressive music that's what it's all about you know yeah <laughs> um, but as as cliche as this sound it really does start with the source it does start with the guitar and i'll explain that like with machine head right you know rob flynn has the he's like my third <laughs> all-time favorite guitar player to like mix i mean his right hand is is amazing you know dude, the only the, two dude the get the guitar players from that era are so good at picking yeah actually you know you know where it comes from and i, I mean i don't know yeah fuck it i'll just put it out there but like my second favorite is gary holt you know from exodus and stuff and um you know, Gary, you know, coming up in the Bay Area and stuff like that with, you know, Kirk Hammond and the Metallica guys, you know, where that, you know, that Bay Area thrash shit is. And which is funny that I'm from New York, but I do all the Bay Area metal bands. Go figure. I hate New York, by the way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but James Hetfield, to me, I mean, Metallica is the one that did all this. So doing eight years working for Metallica and, you know, learning things and hovering Big Mick and when I didn't know shit about audio. Um, but James Hetfield, man, that's what it was. I didn't know you worked for Metallica. I did that for eight years, man. That's how I got my start. I had, I, I had no idea. Yeah, dude, I was. Uh, I mean, if you want, I could go off on this for a sec. Go off, go off on it for a second. We'll talk about guitar tone in a second because okay. kind of a big deal. Yeah, I guess you, you know, you got to kind of know where you come from. That's kind of it ties into you got to know where you want to go to do what you want to do. Um, yeah, real quick, you know. Came from a very rich, Jewishy type of community, uh, you know, very cliquish. I did not have money, and like I was kind of like one of the only metalheads like in the school. And you know, 11 years old, discovering Metallica, and then it became my life. And then so much to the point, like I kept going to shows and stuff, and waiting afterwards to meet the band. And then, you know, as the years kind of went by, they knew my name. And then like one day, it was just like, hey, you want a job, huh? <laughs> So I was basically doing stuff for the fan club, traveling around, you know, it was like the coolest thing in the world, dude. Like, this is my favorite band and they know my name. And it's like, you know, I even own like one of Jason Newstead's Olympic bases and shit. So, you know, uh, yeah, you know, it was like my life, dude. And shit happens for a reason. So within the few early years, it was like, all right, you know, this is when the internet thing was kind of coming up and like there was the Metallica.com and the Met on Tour and all that stuff. So doing stuff for the fan club, like the meet and greet shit. And, um, you know, then one day, Lar you know, Lars wanted 
me to video the show from front of house with a set list and a stopwatch. So that way he knew like how much, you know, like the intro and then the outro of the song. So if he wanted to make a change to the set list, he kind of knew how much time he had. So it was like the first, like the second show of this tour. It was the Summer Sanitarium tour in 2000. And uh, we were in Foxborough, Massachusetts. And I'm standing there with this camera on a tripod at front of house. And I'm looking down at Big Mick, who's their sound guy since 83, waiting for him to like, you know, start the show so I could hit record. And I'm like looking down and I'm like, wow, that looks really fucking cool. And I can send you the, I actually took a photo of this. So I have it timestamped the moment in my life when I said, this is what I want to do. Do you have the photo? I do. I can send that. Can, can we put that in the show notes? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, and I'm looking down at all of this gear and he's on this big Midas, you know, analog XL4. I'm like, wow, that's really fucking cool. And then when the show starts and then, you know, to hear that sound, it was like, holy, that's what I want to do. Like right there, you know, so I just kind of slowly started getting closer. Hey, what's that do? What's that do? You know, and stuff like that. But, you know, we as mix engineers, you know, whether it be studio or lot, we're control freaks. We are like, that, <laughs> that's what we do. You know, like we have this amazing palette of shit in front of us to be able to manipulate and do anything that it is we want to do. So like, that was for me, dude. Like, and that's, you know, so fast forward. So that's, yeah, that's what I did for Metallica. <laughs> kind of got as far as I could and then went out on my own <laughs> and started basically, you know, I did everything backwards. Started at the top of the mountain and went to the bottom of the barrel and <laughs> worked my way back up. <laughs> I was about to say, that's not much room to move besides down from from Metallica. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's funny. Let me, kind of like I was saying with this whole Bay Area thing. It's like, all right, I started there. And then it's like, all right, toured with Death Angel. I did test, I recorded Testament's live DVD. Like most people don't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did all the multi-track and all that shit. Let's see. So yeah, it was uh, Death Angel, uh, Testament, you know, Exodus. I remember, you know, Gary Holt. <laughs> hey, hey, dude, we're going to South America. You got like one of the greatest, you know, live guitar sounds I've ever heard. I'm just like shitting in my pants. You know what I mean? And it's like, this is, again, like this goes back to the Metallica thing. It's like Kirk Hammett, you know, and, you know, Gary Holt, our best friends growing up and teaching guitar to each other. And Kirk leaves to go fucking join Metallica and he puts Gary in there to take over that whole thing. And, you know, and Gary being like Kirk's like, guitar tech and i use that term loosely in the early day you know so it, it's kind of like it's like oh my god like these are idols you know the guy's an amazing guitar player he's probably one of the most underrated guitar players because before he got in the slayer i really don't think most people gave a shit or knew really who gary holt is and i knew he was badass the whole time yeah you and i do but like you know for me to be able to fucking have a guy that has a hell of a rhythm hand and who could shred like it was incredible like i was even in south uh in australia when he did his first tour with fucking slayer and like i said something to carrie king backstage i was like i was like you know hey like i've obviously seen you a million times we toured on the mayhem together but i'm like Dude, what the fuck? Like, Slayer with Gary Holt, a whole new fucking level. He's like, right? You know, like, he, who else was we going to get? You know, like, fucking <laughs> Tom Arias looking at Gary, like, running around the stage, you know? Because if anybody who's seen, like, the old Slayer, it's like he got, you know, Jeff and fucking Carrie and Tom. Like, they're like stage plants. Like, no disrespect, <laughs> but, like, 
they didn't go anywhere. Like Gary's fucking doing backflips off the fucking drum ride. I mean, he's all over the place. Like, so it definitely injected like a new energy. But anyways, back to this. Yeah, guitar sounds. Uh, yeah, it starts. It definitely starts with you know the player, the instrument. Like Rob Flynn plays a baritone guitar, um, and that like gets that fucking oh dude. Like he's got this one guitar that just has this thing, and it's killer. Then sixty five oh fives and fifty one fifties. That's really it. Most people think like we have them like hot rotted and they're not, dude. You know, we just put some soft tech tubes in there and, you know, basically a standard bias of like 34, whatever the fuck, the, you know, the little letters are afterwards. <laughs> but uh, that's really it, man. And, you know, a bunch of pedals like they obviously love the chorus and the phaser and all that stuff. And, you know, we have a custom Bob Bradshaw, you know, you know, controller and all that other stuff, you know, to set it all off. But. An overdrive pedal. That's it, dude. That's the machine head sound. Real amps with real effects and fucking amazing players. Now, uh, everything goes through a Mesa 4x12. Sometimes, like on the bigger stages, I like to keep the cabinet off the stage. Uh, my guys are completely on in-ears, so they don't really need the guitar uh, to be heard on the stage. Well, because it's, you know, typically it's really close to the drum kit and I run the cabinet hot, dude. I'm not kidding you. Like on our rhythms, like the fucking amps on three and that's fucking ripping. Yeah. I, but I, that's what I want, you know, not too much because if you go too much, then it's just, it's a mess and all that other stuff. But I like, you know, really kind of fucking pushing those twos, man. Give me the fucking air movement. If we got 120 watt fucking head, like why well, only use like 12 watts? You know what I mean? Like. It's, I mean, that's debatable because sometimes I like, you know, 50 watt heads over 100 watt heads sometimes. But same here. Yeah. You know, but, it, but that's the thing. It's like you got to understand, like, you know, I'm putting it through a big fat PA. You're trying to put it through two fucking little earbuds. You, you know what I mean? So it's, it's taming the beast a little bit different. So um, it has its place. And don't get me wrong, like the 100 watt, like you get the extra power amps in there. And I, I love it. To me, that's the whole thing. Like, you know, it's a real guitar sound machine. Head is the kind of band that it, obviously it's about its guitar sound. I mean, it basically put the 5150 on the map aside from Eddie Van Halen. Uh, you, you know what I mean? And that's actually kind of how I found out about Machine Head when I had my band, you know, because I was like trying to model everything after Metallica. And my singer was like, like, dude, we need 5150s. I'm like, fuck that. We need like triple Rex and triaxes and shit. And they're like, no, no, no. It's like, dude, 5150. I'm like, dude, we're not going to play jump and like, you know, I'm your ice cream man. He's like, dude, you don't get it. <laughs> he hands me the fucking a machine cassette. If most of you people don't know what those are, you know, those are the eight tracks of our time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it was like, you know, like, Burma, like, are you kidding me? And hearing this Davidian, and I'm just like, holy shit. Like, what is this? Like, I've never had heard anything like that before. And now to fast forward all these years ahead, it's like, yeah, I'm basically running that band. Like, like I have complete control over the sound, like my crew, you know, like, I guess I could tell the Monty Connor story like in a minute, but yeah, I mean, like I have trust, like Rob's trust, but you know, he knows that I know what to do. And to me, that is like the biggest honor ever. You know, you take an iconic fucking band like Machine Head who, I mean, let's let's face it. I mean, it's like they have a sound and that they, you know, created a thing. And it's like now to be the guy like, like 
running it. Pretty cool. It's pretty fucking badass, man. You know, it's it's not, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's like, holy shit, you know, and, and it's an honor. But, um, yeah, so as far as biking guitars, you know, everything that you were saying, you know, the gain and all that stuff, uh, you know, obviously that does play a big role into it, particularly like these younger bands out there. It's like we tell them when you're recording, you know, less gain, it actually sounds heavier. But on the live side of things, less gain is going to make it, you know, less feedback or, you know, you're going to need like 27 fucking, you know, gates in front of your amp, you know, to make it not feedback, <laughs> but it's going to kill all your shit. But, you know, hey, you know, I can give a little secret out. Like most people are like, how do you keep the amps quiet? Because I run the clean separately. So we have obviously the noise gate on the way in and all that other stuff, meaning like into the front. And then there's the effects loop. And I'm, I'm sure if one of my guitar techs will listen, I might have this slightly wrong because it's been a while since I've been in the rigs. But um, we have a noise gate actually on the effects loop as well. So like when the amp switches to the, like when we switch over to the clean, the main amp is still technically on, but we're just cutting the signal. So that way there's like no sound whatsoever. And that's like a cool studio trick too, man. You can use multiple gates like on the way in and then the effects loop return and stuff. You know, it's, it's a good way. Like, you know, if a player is playing and they got like a noisy, you know, guitar or you're basically recording in your mom's fucking living room and you have all these lights in the house that's causing it to buzz and stuff like that. Um, you know, you can put gates in there, which will make the mix engineer's life a lot easier when he's cleaning up, you know, head and tail and all the shit. So don't be afraid to use multiple fucking noise gates, man. It works, you know. So that's that's the trick. But, you know, for guitar mics, uh, A2500. That's what I use on my guitar cabinet live. People are like, well, it's kick drum mic. Uh, yeah, it, it, you could use it for a kick drum, but there's no such thing as, as a kick drum microphone. It's a fucking, it's a dynamic and a condenser in one fucking housing. And why not use it on the guitar? I could put out one mic stand. The, L, uh, the two capsules are completely perfectly in phase. You know, people put dynamics and condensers on guitars all day long and they separate it and you're dealing with phase and whatever and all that other bullshit. So it's like, stick one fucking mic on there, call it a day. <laughs> yeah, less less variables to deal with, especially in a fluid situation like live. Yeah, you know. And like for the guitar sound, for me, it's, it's, it's like... It's another like 80-20. The dynamic is pretty much the uh, is the prominent mic in that whole thing. The condenser just kind of, you know, it's one of those things you kind of mute. It just like it just takes away a little bit. You know, it's like hey, something's missing there. It doesn't really, you know, it's like a DBA two if it drops in and out. But really, what I do with that is that one will get panned hard right or left. You know. Uh, and then the dynamic, you know, depending upon how wide the PA or the arena is or whatever, it's, you know, I'll tweak with that. But for the most part, it's, you know, it's 10 and 2. And then, um, you know, with a lot of the back and forth solo stuff, I don't, I don't, for the machine head, I don't bring them up the middle because I just don't have that many fucking hands because they're constantly trading off to, to be able to do that many moves in a moment <laughs> is like almost next to impossible. Could I automate it? Yeah, but then that just makes it robotic and that's boring. I want to actually mix. So whatever, it works for me. <laughs> well, what about bass? Bass live? Uh, <laughs> this is funny. It's a it's the straight DI from the bass guitar and then we have a Kemper. Uh, <laughs> the Kemper though, uh, and, and I'll put this out there. I mean, I'm like, 
it, you know, I'm, I hate being one of those guys who like, oh, you hide things and there's secrets and all that other stuff. Um, I'm, I'll put it out there. But R. Kemper, um, I remember when the record was getting ready to come out and we were getting ready for tour and Rob walks into the fucking to the jam room when I'm prepping for tour and hands me this fucking toaster looking thing. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck is this? He's like, oh, yeah, we're going to use this for the bass sound. I'm like, uh, what is it? He's like, it's a Kemper. I'm like, uh, what's that? And uh, he's like, well, we use it on the record. Like Colin used it to kind of like add it to the bass sound. And I'm like, oh, OK, huh? I, I'm just like not wrapping my head around this thing. So we try it in like rehearsal and it was like nails on a chalkboard, dude. It was Colin used it to blend with like the DIs and um, to, but to kind of give it the distortion. And we did like one show with it, dude. I fucking hated it. I'm like, this thing sucks. Like this is terrible. <laughs> like, no, I, I'm not kidding you. It, re it didn't have any low end to it whatsoever. And it Rob's like, try taking the DI from the back of the thing. And I'm like, I'm like, I did. And that sounds even worse, dude. Like what the fuck? Like it was horrible. And so I get a hold of good old Andy Sneep, you know, and obviously he had the file and, um, Cause he does like, oh, you, you, you gotta clear this up with him. Cause even I don't like know for a hundred percent, like how he did it, but like he, you know how he does all the tune track shit yes. and then like that, uh, what are those easy mix packs or something like that? You know, where it basically has a, like, oh, this is what you use for this and this and that, but yep. you can't, you can't change anything. So I think he used whatever the software they use to design that. So, like, again, don't yeah. hold... No, no, actually, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so what he ended up doing was uh, he, like, profiled the bass sound, but, like, routed in, like, a DI to blend with it or something like that. Like, I whatever. Like, Sneep just sent me the file back, and I was just like, all right, let's see what this, you know, will fucking do. You know, and, like... Yeah, it was like there it was. And because most people don't realize it's like, you know, low end on a record is a lot different than low end live. So you're not like, you're not trying to get ass tons of low end, you know, on a record, you know, especially in the bass guitar. Like, where do you roll off your bass, you know? Like, like how much are you taking out in the low end there? Quite a bit, actually. Sometimes all the way up to 80. Yeah. But even then, you know, like the other fundamental, it's like 100, 120, you know, whatever, like that. Like, I'm not kidding you. The original Kemper bass sound that we had, it sounded like it was rolled off to like 400 or 500. Jesus. Dude, I, that's what I'm saying. It was like nails on a chalkboard. And basically the sound that we were trying to go for was the classic, you know, SVT with the Sansam. You know, just like the PSA 1. And like that's what we were using like when I first started touring with these guys. It was an SVT and a fucking Sansamp to just kind of drive it a little bit on the front end. And you know, and well, when the American made SVTs were, you know, shitty <laughs> like they are now, you know, the, the cool trick was to you just basically take the Sansamp, take the output from that and put it into the, the effects return of the amplifier, bypassing the preamp altogether and just using the power amp section. And there you go. I mean, I used to do that with a lot of bands when we'd go to Europe and we'd have to use shitty backline. It was, yo, 
grab the Sanzambi, either the pedal, you know, the, the bass driver DI thing, you know, which is amazing. Or you, you know, you spend a few extra bucks and you get that programmable one that has a little, you know, a couple more bells and whistles on it. And you shove that into the power amp of any fucking amplifier and you got your sound pretty much anywhere you go. And then if you take the direct, you know, even better. So that's, uh, that's basically what the sound of the Kemper is. So I blend that with the DI and, uh, you know, and just it's it's just an overdriven sound that just sounds great, but not like, you know, overbearing. You know, it's it's right. You know, and and you know, I am a bass player, or was I should say, and uh, I like low end. You know, I like hearing bass. You know, like in the mix. You know, like he's there for a reason. You know, like <laughs> let's hear him. You know, like most people kind of don't do that, but getting the bass to sit right between the kick drums and the, even especially the low end of the guitar with machine head, uh, you know, we're tuned down so fucking low, dude. And it's like, you know, like it, it's hard to, it was hard to kind of, you know, at first really place those, those instruments, you know, between the kick drum, you know, the low end of the bass guitar and then the low end of the regular guitars. So, um, but I made it work and then, you know, put in six fucking toms and all the other shit and barking vocals and all, and all, you know, it's, it's, it's fun, man. You know, so you just got to give everything its home. <laughs> so I have some questions from the audience here. If you don't mind, okay. sure, I'd like sure. to go through some of these too. Of course. Awesome. Because uh, they actually asked uh, quite a few. Okay. So here's one from Eric, which is, do you use any backup recording system? And if so, what kind? Backup recording as in, like, multi-track the live show? Yeah. yeah. Um, not a backup. Does he mean for, like, live recording for, like, yes. a, like actual release? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, however, for the testament one, I didn't. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Uh, dude, yeah, that was a butthole clenching moment. Yeah, um, I always do. Uh, I'm very fortunate enough, like, if, you know, with my console, I can multi-track record everything. So my gains are a little bit different there. Can they be used in the studio? Absolutely, as a backup. So to me, that would be the backup. But I have a three-way, you know, splitter, like, on, you know, my stage rack and stuff. So I'm able to have my signals go in the front of the house. The second one going to monitors, and then a third one, which is transformer isolated, you know, for like big festivals and stuff that have broadcast trucks. But yeah, I mean, I can just plug in one of my, you know, I have a Pro Tools HD rig and stuff. I can go in that way and go into separate preamps and really get gain control that way. So, but nowadays, like with this digital console stuff, I mean, you could digitally split signals and have multiple recording sources really, really easy using Matty. I mean, I used to record everything with the Matty interface and stuff like that. The Avid Matty was great. But yeah, uh, if you're, you know, always, you've got to have two recording sources. I mean, a third if you could do it. I mean, there's no such thing as not having too much, man. So yeah. Great. Awesome. And then he says, while recording live performance, do you go straight from the main console to the recording system, or do you use some splits with separate gain in case you need to change anything while mid-show on front of house? Right, yes. Well, that's I kind of just answered that. Yeah, so with the analog split that I have, it allows me to have... Okay, yeah. But, like, but he's, these are some 
great questions that he's actually asking. On some consoles, like the Midas and like the Avid consoles, like the you know the Profiles and stuff and SC48s, I'm not 100% on some of the other digital ones. I'm sure you probably can, but because uh, it's digital, is y- you can change the pickoff points where you're going to capture your audio from. So basically, the signal flow would be like the microphone, you know, into that box, like the stage box for it. And then, you know, it's the head amp gain uh, or, you know, the digital gains and stuff like that. And sometimes you get it's before or after the high pass filter. But then the pickoff point would be like right there. So basically, if you did like virtual sound check, it comes back in as if the band's on stage before any of your other processing. So, yeah, you could pick off from there. So that way you're not committed to any of the EQ. Uh, you kind of have to be careful because sometimes if your system is not that good, it can introduce a lot of noise back on the front of house console. So that's another way. But with the digital snakes nowadays, uh, everything being on an AES-50 network or Dante or Maddie, I mean, even the little X32 console that's like two grand, you know, like you got, you know, multiple ways to get out audio from that system there. So, uh, you know, 20 years ago, it was a bitch. But nowadays, I mean, you can get some solid recording shit for very little money and I'm not even kidding you like sometimes the stuff that I'm recording sounds better than shit that you hear in multi-million dollar studios but that's the fool not the tool there so <laughs> well that we man technology does make life so much better these days but it's still all about your ears and your skills he just asked if uh, do you, you use any additional inputs outside of your normal input list, like additional DIs or any other channels when yeah. you when you record? I do, and I do this actually with my standard setup for Machine Head. Not so much with the other bands if I'm not recording. Yeah, I have a clean DI for all the guitars, all the bass. You know, I have room like I have staged like room mics, but that's actually used for the in ears. But uh, you know, that works great for live, you know, live recordings. I used to throw up an AT4050 ST at front of house, but I was just kind of tired of fuckers throwing shit into it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, plus it's an expensive mic, you know, and I don't know. Um, but yeah, you know, always capture the DI. Uh, like when I did the Testament thing, I was like a, a psychopath because... You know, let's face it, like most people nowadays, like since you have like a million channels to record, but I didn't know who was going to mix the thing. So what I did was uh, I took the clean DI um, from, you know, because they were using effects like in front of the head and, uh, you know, in the effects loop, you know, with those guys. And what I did was I captured like basically the DI all post those effects because it wasn't really my choice because they had a front of house guy because you got to remember we're a live DVD, they're on tour, you know, so you kind of have to use, you know, what the front of house guy wants to use. And uh, it wasn't my best mic choices. And if it wasn't right, the best thing for me to do was hand, you know, the mix guy two DIs. So instead of trying to get these guys and their guitar rigs into the fucking studio, I had the DI with all the effects that were going into the front of the head, as well as all the effects that were going into, you know, the effects return. So if he needed to do the reamping, you know, here you go. You have everything that you need, you know, just chuck an amp in front, you know, in there and boom, you have it. So that's, yeah, I mean, it never hurts, you know, so you 
Yeah, you know, everybody will tell you, like, having it is a good thing. You know, you can never not, you know, the DI is key. You know, always have it. So, so actually, here's a question from Luis Jaime Flores, which is on that topic, when recording DIs live, what's the first thing you should check to make sure you're getting a good recording? As far as level? Yeah, well, I guess he's asking because lots of times we tell people that you need to make sure you're capturing good DI, at least in the studio, and we tell people what to listen for, but how are you checking it? live to make sure that it's not <laughs> not not fucked i guess uh, honestly uh um i don't really check it to be honest it, other than like when, when i do the line check with you know the crew i just it's i just get it to unity on my desk because my meters are uh dbf uh sorry dbvu they're not digital so it basically goes into pro tools you know at unity so with a minus 18 db uh uh, you know, calibration and stuff like that. You know, you're basically kind of just seeing it all the way up into the green, you know, little peaks here, you know, about a quarter to two, you know, a third of the way up in the orange and stuff like that. You know, so it's it's easy for me because it's like I just turn it to zero and it's like, you know, it's done. It's like right in and stuff like that. Um, but every now and then, you know, I check it. Do I critically listen to it? No, not really. I don't have to, you know, because I'm just recording it every day. But I, I would suggest that you do it. Um, I use, you know, using a good active DI. I use the J48s. Like I have those all over, uh, all over uh, the stage. You know, I'm a big fan of the radial stuff. You know, the JD7 is amazing. You know, we even use the JD6 for like the playback stuff. And since I mentioned playback, I'm going to put this out there. Machine Head does not have, like, backing bullshit, no guitars or anything like that. It's just for, like, intros, like the ear candy bullshit, uh, and, and that's it, you know. So, you know, you know, DI box is the way to go. You got to be careful, though, and, you know, you got to know about the ground lifts and stuff like that, you know, because that can definitely introduce noise in these complex guitar rigs and stuff. So be aware that you might need to flip the... Uh, you know, the ground on that. All right, great. Here's one from Scott Turek, which is, what's the best way to isolate a lead vocal on a smaller stage to reduce bleed during a live recording? I do mainly live recordings for the venue I work at, so this is an issue all the time with my recordings. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, if if we had the answer to that, you know, we would be golden. Um, but there's a couple of things that you could do for that. Uh, if it's on a stand and... Like with Machine Head, he's, you know, Rob's basically glued to that thing all night long. Um, and sometimes, depending upon the depth of the, you know, the stage, like Dave's fucking drums are like right up Rob's ass. And that's riding that shit is like something I have to do a lot. I will also use the low pass filters. I'm fortunate enough to have those. Um, but microphone for vocals, I'm using the AT6100s. Uh, it's a, I can't remember if it's a super or a hypercardia. So basically it kills the bleed like big time. It's very directional, that microphone. So it's like, you know, if you're right there on the grill and then you move like an inch or two to the right, it's like, it's gone. <laughs> so I would definitely, you know, obviously get the mic that can reject a lot of that stuff. You know, there's a lot of manufacturers out there that do that, but yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's just kind of the way it is, man. Uh, maybe put some treatment if it's a really small stage, if it's, you know, your venue and stuff, uh, you know, deaden it up. Don't t totally kill it because 
that you know might just affect your actual mixing and stuff but you know there's a lot of different ways to do it but uh those are the two tricks that i have right now you know microphone and just working on some of the treatment man all right here's one well we have a bunch from alex prieto who is uh bring it on i love it you you might i don't know if you've encountered him he does live sound he tours as well and he came up working under Dan Corneff doing records, and he's he's a fucking badass and a good friend. He's also been on the podcast. Cool. So uh, we'll just go down his list. So are you a fan of feeding your subs on a separate matrix? No, I hate it, but I have to sometimes. <laughs> the reason why I don't like it, and, you know, for the last couple of years, I've been asking more venues why they've been doing this, and it's actually because of the fucking Unsa Unsa boys, the fucking DJs of the world. Um, the you Unsa know, they, Unsa boys. <laughs> yeah, sorry. You know what I mean? Like, it's just some bullshit. It's just like these guys, they go into these venues and, you know, they crank the shit out of the fucking subs, and, you know, usually they're you know, monitors that they have on stage is like a fucking PA. So they don't really hear, they don't care. Like they don't get headroom and gain, you know, they don't do that. So they blow subs. So a lot of these venues, you know, they have the subs on an aux. So if the dude's being a dick and he doesn't want to fucking, you know, turn down, you know, these guys could just, you know, you know, single fader. But for me, it's like you're altering the response of the subwoofers by fucking with that. So I don't, like the way I feed the subs on an aux, I feed it right off my left and right. Like I don't see the fucking point of adding a step. Like, okay, here's the kick drum. Oh wait, I gotta turn up aux eight to add all the low end. And it's like, then you're building your mix. It's like, oh wait a minute, now the subs are clipping. So where's it clipping from? Is it from the bass guitar or the kick drum or the, like, like fuck that? You know what I mean? Like if there's too much low end in your mix, fix it at the fucking channel. Like I don't need a separate fader. Fuck that shit. You know what I mean? Like left and right, maybe center and that's about it you know but you know venues are you know i gotta do subs front fills stereo delays i mean shit i even have to put the fucking you know like you go to the nice little rock club and you're taking a dump at the venue and you still hear the you know the song like while you're in there yeah i have to feed those speakers sometimes too man so you know <laughs> I, i'm not kidding you like i'm dude i have an ipad i will play my virtual music back and i will walk around like i even go into the bathroom and eq those fucking shitty mono speakers in the ceiling you know i want my shit to sound killer man like that's it going above and beyond so i'm in the bathroom stall fucking ringing out the pa so (laughs) (laughs) all right so um parallel compression friend or foe uh friend but i don't really fuck with it recently i've been just kind of mixing with the groups now uh, instead of just sending everything to the left and right i do it because there's like this new not a plug-in, but there's like a new effect in the Midas that's like awesome, man. It's like a transient designer. And uh, yeah, I kind of, I like it a little bit to just kind of add a little bit more attack to some things. But um, no, not really. It's, I have compression on everything. Uh, I mean, literally everything, but you don't hear it the proper way to do compression. Um, it's just to smooth things out because most people don't realize like when you heavily compress stuff, it just brings the noise up. So like if like for a vocal, like if the dude's barking his fucking head off or whatever, and you're constantly like 12 to 20 fucking DB of reduction. And then when he stops singing, that's 20 DB that the noise comes up. So (laughs) don't, you know, compress the fuck out of everything. So it's, you just see a little bit of compression here or there. It's just the smooth shit out, particularly like the symbols and stuff like that. Um, not a lot of compression, like as far as reduction, but compression on everything. But yeah, parallel compression can be cool. So 
it's tough nowadays with the digital stuff because if you're using an outboard piece, you might have uh, the time alignments. You know, we don't necessarily have the delay comp like we do in Pro Tools, but it's getting better out there and there's still a little bit to it, but go for it. Yeah, I, it's, I could live with it or without it. It doesn't matter. I'm not a big guy on it. All right. When tuning in an empty room, how much are you planning for the room to change when filled with bodies, hopefully? A lot. Uh, that's experience, man. Um, seriously, it really, really is. Back to what I was saying, like with my graphic EQ, like like when I play those five songs, I kind of know what's going to go on. And then I am fortunate enough to have the virtual sound check, but I don't use the virtual sound check to tune the room. I actually just do it. Like if I don't have a system processor at front of house for like the PA, like if I'm in a venue, like I'll play that and I'll walk around, like I'll go back to the amp room and like I'll bring the master fader up and check to make sure that the amps aren't clipping, you know, cause, cause like, look, I mean, I, I know I've been a house guy and I've, seen the whole touring thing you know and it's like so like when a lot of these touring engineers kind of go in especially when you have a loud band you know you're kind of nervous that somebody's gonna fuck some shit up so i respect the venue like i'm not trying to you know go in and blow up pa systems like I, that's not me i'm not that guy can i mix loud from time to time yeah but if you actually put it on a meter it's not that loud it's more of a perceived loudness so, um, yeah, as far as the, the room being empty, it's more of a feel thing. Uh, temperature is a very, very big thing with that. You know, I mean, I love hot shows and particularly like a lot of bands, uh, they don't like the air conditioning on like machine head, you know, Rob's up there ripping his fucking head off for three hours playing and singing some hard ass shit. You can't have the room too cold or that's going to, you know, fuck the vocal cords up. So heat and, you know, atmosphere uh, and moisture and all that stuff is, is your humidity is your friend. So, but yeah, I take it into consideration and I adjust a couple of things here and there. It's mostly in the top end that you see the, the changes happen happening, but you know, you just kind of roll with it. Once I kind of get to the first song or two, uh, I kind of have it dialed in. And then every now and then, like, you'll get, you'll notice that the air conditioner comes on and you're like, why does this sound bland all of a sudden? And you're like, oh, wait, I'm a cold, you know? Oh yeah, they changed the, the temperature. And, you know, mixing outside, that's a huge thing, you know, from during the day to the nighttime. It's acoustics, man. That's a huge fucking thing, man. So... Yeah, it's, it's a battle. <laughs> All right. How about what are your favorite songs to tune to? All right. Uh, I will tell you. I've been using the same one. The first song is Scream, Aim, Fire from Bullet For My Valentine. Colin Richardson mix. Like, he's the guy like that I look up to. He's the guy. I mean. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's really, really weird because it's we have very similar mixing styles. And when I started working for Machine Head, even though I had not heard like all of the songs that we were playing live, I was just kind of doing my delay things. and like, oh, this is what I would do. And then I would go back and listen to the songs like from the records. And we were doing similar shit, which was great. So I use that. Scream Aim Fire is like the overall balance. You know, it's a good track. Like I said, I dip my 160, 125s, 250s, three, you know, like shit around there. And then I adjust a little bit of the 3.15, uh, you know, 1K around that area. The second track is another song from that record, uh, which is uh, Awaken the Demon. Like Colin, 
I don't know if it's in the mix or the mastering. I think it's the mixing. And I told Colin, you know, when we've hung out, like, hey, this is what I use to tune the PA. And he's like, really? You know, um, lovely guy. Amazing. Carl, Carl Brown, you're a lucky fuck. Carl Brown, you should come on the podcast. No, he's too busy, man. He's out there doing Dude, it. Every single person <laughs> on our podcast is busy. I know. He's got a kid and all that shit. So he's, he's, About 60 to 70% of the people on our podcast have kids. All right, all right, all right. I, you know, I'm not trying to defend you, Carl. I love you. <laughs> We've, we had some fun plenty of times in, in Nottingham between uh, Carl, uh, Sneep, and Colin. You know, good times, man. A lot of fun stories. But, um, yeah, so screen, um, Awaken the Demon with the low end on that. You know, like there's that 50, 60 hertz thing, like just for that intro where there's that double bass, like, to me, I just use that to just really kind of push the subs to like that edge. And if I see like a little flicker or two in the red, then I know when I go into my set, you know, with my show that I've got a couple of dB of headroom that I'm not going to have any problems. So especially if I have those subs on an aux that I'm able to, uh, you know, use that. Second song, uh, th- sorry, third song, Sad But True. Hell yeah. All right. 120 hertz. And 200 uh, is what I use that for. If you listen to, you know, you know where it's like, duh, 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 the bass guitar really sticks out at 120, 110, like in that. And surprisingly, that's like a frequency that resonates in a lot of venues. So I, I fuck with that song basically just for that. I also mess a little bit with the 200, and that's it. And and just mind you, like with the essentials of Scream Aim Fire. Like, you know, these songs are just happening for, I don't know, 20 seconds. That's it. Like, I just get what I need, you know, and just move on. Like, I don't, you know, I don't see the point of trying to sit there and tune a fucking PA for four fucking hours. Uh, I don't do 12-hour long fucking sound checks because it's all going to change. You know, it's all going to be completely different when you put, you know, 2,000 or 5,000 people in that room. Like, there's no fucking point to it. Like, line checks and sound checks for me are basically adjusting gates and compressions and kind of preparing for like the difference of soundcheck versus the actual show because <laughs> nobody at soundcheck after they just wake up is playing like show intensity so you got to kind of leave that you know <laughs> that area to kind of take back over you know um but yeah so that's it i'm not killing myself with the pa fourth song uh ironically davidian and it, it's been way before I've been working for Machine Head, particularly for the top end. I work on the four and the five K because there's a fuck ton of that on that song. So if it's melting your face off, then I know I need to dip that out. And then the last, which will probably surprise a lot of people, is uh, is a drum stem from Lamb of God from the Wrath album, and. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's Dead Seeds, whatever track eight is. I think it is. There's, uh, I fast forward to two minutes. It's when they do that floor tom thing because that's actually like my, with the exception of the snare. And Chris, I love you, but I, I'm just, the snare drum was not for me. But the rest of the drum sound on that recording is like, is killer. Because I think the way they recorded the drums on that was in sections the kicks and the snares, then the toms, and then the cymbals. Mm-hmm. So everything was clean, and that actually sounds like my drums. 
So I use that to kind of just also just check the low mids and the mids for like 500 and that's it. And then I run my fucking shit back and that's it. And it works like every time. <laughs> All right. Full triggering or blend? Uh, blend. But now because I have 10 million fucking channels on my new Pro X console, I'm just double inputting. Uh, I'm just splitting the input. You and I talked about this at, at uh, NAM. Yes, like we did. Mexico. Yeah, I'm just splitting the input, you know, just EQing the shit out of uh, the second one to really kind of get what I need. But I like triggers for monitors. Like if you have like a, you know, a band that's not on in-ears, like it, it has its place. It's it's too tight ridery-ish. You know, I hate bands that rely on it to me, like... It's it's fake and drummers just kind of bitch out, like they hit like a bitch. Like I mean, even Danny from Napalm Death, dude, I'm all over him. Like I'm giving him shit. Barney's on stage trying to fucking step on that fucking thing. It's gr amazing. Like, uh, you know, but Danny was one of those drummers. Like you know, years ago, like you know, could, you know, he's getting up there in age and shit, and like. He's hitting the drums and then he's kind of laxing on the feet a little bit, and a lot of these guys start doing that. So. I'm not kidding you. Like, if, if you lost my trigger um, out front, you really wouldn't notice it. <laughs> Fair enough. It just, it's like we do in the studio where we put the real kick in and we just kind of put the sample in underneath to kind of keep, you know, smooth it out a little bit and keep the consistency. I used to name the, the, the trigger channel The Hangover, you know, so <laughs> the drummer the night before was too fucked up. You know, it's like, all right, <laughs> you got to kind of help them. You know what I mean? Like, we have to do that as engineers. It's like, you know, Rob's getting sick or whatever. We canceled two weeks of shows and was like, all right, the vocal's not going to be up front as much as it normally is, but you, know, you got to help the guy out. So he's a human. Like, you're humans, and I don't understand why bands want to fix everything. Like, record together as a band in the studio. Why? Because you're going out to play as a band together. Like, like who wants to just, like, well, it could play perfectly to a click. Great, yeah, we can program the drums. Like, I want the humanness to it. Like, that's the fun thing about it, seeing a live band. So you come see Machine Head. There's none of that fucking trickery. It's real. These are 50-year-old dudes playing three fucking hours. Like, I see people half that fucking age that can't do 10 minutes. Well, dude, I'm out of breath. Oh, I can't, my feet are cramping up. Like, are you kidding me? Like, so, hey, you know, sorry. That's rant. impressive, actually, and rant away. It's all good. So are you using a VIG rig? I don't know what that is. Oh, a v oh wait, I don't know what that means. V-I-G. V-I-G. Uh, don't know what that is. All right, Alex. Alex, we have no idea what the hell you're talking about. All right. <laughs> Could be. Um, what did he write? VI6. Maybe VI6. What's a VI6 rig? It's a Soundcraft mixing console. Are we live? No, we're not live. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah fuck that. We'll skip that question from him. And uh, final question from Alex is, how, how do you deal with potential phasing when doing parallel compression on a digital board? Yeah, that's what I talked about. You did talk about that. Yeah, it's, uh, but to go into it so that the other people could kind of understand it, all right, um, it's kind of like digital recording. It's like, okay, you put a plug in on one channel if you don't, you know, have it on the other. It's like the unprocessed one's going to arrive before the processed one because obviously the signal has to go through the fucking, you know, the DSP, whatever. So when you do that, if you do it internally, like with, I know the Midas and 
the avid stuff has gotten better, but there's tricks like Robert Scoville, love the good dude, like great front house guy, Tom Petty, but he does all the avid stuff. He's got a couple of videos online on like how you could trick and manipulate it and stuff like that. But and uh, hey, uh, we should include that in the show notes as well. Link to that. Uh, we're going to a link to those videos. Okay. Yeah. It, they're pretty super nerdy. <laughs> um, yeah. For the, for those of you who want to take it to a nerdy place, check yeah. the show notes. Yeah. Cause you can fucking, you can, um, you know, take like acoustic measurement software, like smart and like route pink noise out as your measurement and then pan that to the left and then take your, you know, your parallel compression and have it on the right. And you can actually see like what your delay is within the acoustic measurement. And then you can add delay compensation to line it up and you could hear like the comb filtering happen. So if you're a super nerd and you love doing all that shit, go check out that video. You'll, You'll be in all your fucking glory. Um, but me as an engineer, like, I don't have time for that bullshit. You know, kind of like we said at the top of this thing. Like, you know, I got to walk in and fucking make it work. You know what I mean? So less is more. Like, I've, you know, that was always the thing. Like, you know, that the touring guy fucking had all of the gates in the comp. So I used to carry my own fucking, like, rack of gates and inserts and stuff, which ironically was the Samson S Gate 4, the cheapest shit ever. Like, I have, like, four of those things. And, dude, they're better than Dwarmers. They're clean. And I've taken them all over the world. So, yeah, like, I didn't have all the extra shit. You know what I mean? Like, I had... Just a couple of microphones that I relied on. Those were my tools. But these microphones still to this day are my fucking tools. And I know what they're supposed to sound like. And I mix to that. Particularly like outdoor shows. Like big fucking, you know, like rockin' festival in front of 100,000 people. Like front of house is like 300 feet back. It's not dead center. You know, you don't really know what the PA is like. So what I do is, like, with those 2500s for the guitar, like, I'm not kidding. I roll it off to 100, and like I said, other than Machine Head, I leave them flat. So I build the mix around the guitar, you know? And people are like, huh? Like, but yeah, because I know that this is the sound. Like, every time I do that, if this is what it's supposed to, you know, it always sounds good, regardless of what, you know, mixing console I'm on. And so I would build the mix around that. So, yeah. Back to the insert thing. Yeah, it's it's tough. If you're doing it, like I said, internally, you're going to be all right. But if you start introducing the hardware, um, you know, then you got to kind of go to every single channel and add the delay because you can actually do that. You know, like, you know how, like, on the bottom of, like, Pro Tools HD, you can see the delay comp and you can see how many milliseconds and all that stuff is? Mm-hmm. You can do that on, on each channel, like, on the inputs as well as the outputs. So... Um, but a lot of these consoles, they just do all the time management itself. But the minute you try to leave, it's it gets a little fucking hairy. <laughs> so fair enough. All right, here's uh, here's one from Aristotle Mall, which is what was the biggest mistake you've ever had doing live sound, and what did you learn from that? Good question. Um, well, mistakes. Are, well. Yeah, I mean, we all make mistakes. Um, I would have to say, <laughs> one was just like an, a stupid thing. Like when I first started using the automation, um, like consoles have like mute groups, so you can like mute things, right? So I'm like, you know, so on the Midas console, there's like a button that says next and all this other stuff, right? So like, you know, as you're kind of doing it, you know, you're hitting the next songs and stuff like that. So it was like the third thing I was doing it. For some unknown reason, instead of me reaching over and hitting the next button, I reached over to mute group. 
10 or whatever. And that's where I'd mute everything. Whoops. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was like one of those things, like right away, the tour manager radio. What the fuck was that? Oh, yeah, I blew it. You know, it's like I fucked up, you know, and it's. Yeah, mistakes like that. Um, I mean, but shit happens. Yeah, you know, that's the whole thing. Like I said about live, man. It's like, all right, if it happened, keep going. <laughs> you know, it's not there forever. But you got to learn. You know, yeah, definitely learn from your mistakes. There's, I mean, shit, I could be here for hours. Like, there's so many things you learn. It's like, all right, this mic or this technique or this effect doesn't work or you know, so every every day is a learning, even if you don't fuck up. You know, as cliche as that is, it's there's so much to learn, dude. I mean, it's not even funny. Like, there's guys out there that just know this shit, and you're just like, how the fuck do you know all that? Because <laughs> they've been doing it forever. No, yeah, but it's just like like the acoustic stuff, man. Like the oh that stuff, yeah. The tuning, like my buddy Chris, and like uh, you know the guys that basically created like Smart and all that stuff. And but the real fucking alien, this guy Bob McCarthy, he's. He basically designs like everything for like my, like he created the analyzer. All right. And like I'm friends with him. Like, and when I was reading up his on his book, I've read two versions of it. And I sent him a message. I'm like, dude, you're a fucking alien. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm a transformer. I was like, huh? <laughs> he's like, he's like, I'm called Optimization Prime. I'm like, oh my God. What a dork. <laughs> but, but dude, he's. But the he is. Man. Yeah, like he knows, like it's unbelievable if you look up that dude. Like, so if you want to understand how to set up PAs, how to do acoustic treatment, and not just for live, dude, I use this shit in the studio, like understanding like standing waves and like all of that stuff, man, comb filter, like these, like that's the whole thing. People don't realize it's like live and studio. Like, there's so many things that are intertwined. Why? Because we're using our ears, you know, so. I, I would suggest, like, if you are one of those super nerds, it's it's a hard book to read. But Bob McCarthy, uh, it's uh, optimization. Uh, it's optimization. Uh, hang on, I got it. I actually got it here on my phone. I'm a super nerd, but this is I got I got to hand it to Bob. Uh, he is a genius. And all right, the name of his book. Jesus, I got a lot of stuff on books. And we are going to link to this, too. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Sound System Design and Optimization. Get the third edition. Because he made that one more understanding. But, yeah, it's a very difficult read, but it's like a toolbox, man. I'm not kidding you. That's why I keep it on my phone. Because there's so much shit that I go back to reference, like when I encounter strange situations. Um, but, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Great. Thank you. So Brendan Gregory is asking, what advice would you give to someone who wants to become a touring front of house guy? I've been doing live sound for a couple of years for companies and small venues and really want to go on tour, but I'm not sure what the best route to take is. Great question. I get it asked all the time. Um, working for the sound company is one way. I have a lot of friends that have gotten on to some big gigs. You're definitely going to learn a lot, especially how to fly a PA, tuning it. So the A2 kind of thing is big there. But you never know, man, if you're in a decent sound company that gets hired by some big shit. Like, I'm telling you, I, there's, it, I see it happen all the time. Like the band engineer or the band monitor guy, like, you know, they'll freak out or get drunk and you may have to step in and, and they'd be like, wow. Um, but working in the venues, it, it's kind of really kind of being 
not being the dick local sound guy, like really kind of go above and beyond, not just for the national acts, but the smaller acts. Let me back you up on this. From touring, I remember a few times actually where we would get to a certain venue and their local person or even the monitor person uh-huh. was just a cut above your regular house sound person. And it was, it happened at least three times that the same person who made a great impression on my band and the tour I was on, we later would bump into on the road because some band hired that person. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's it, man. I can't tell you, I run into so many like local guys that are awesome that I would give my left nut to be able to take them with me. Like, they're just good dudes. You know, they're constantly checking in on you. You know, like when you advance the show, <laughs> they actually read the information and they have everything that you ask for, you know, like the stage clear. You know, just just really being flexible and being a good guy. Like, so for any of you guys out there who might be doing monitors, like, oh, dude, I see this all the time. Monitor guys, man, and particularly with the metal, they just like turn the game now, push up the fader, and it's like, that's it. It's like... Could you fucking maybe try to EQ it? Like, can you actually, like, maybe do something and show that you care? Like, pushing up a fader? Like, really? Come on. Like, I get into people's asses about that. You know what I mean? Like, you know, clean shit up. You got the, you got this, you know, $20,000 fucking mixing console with all the processing in the world on it. You know, you could use some of it, just the filters, like, clean your life, you know make things easy bring the feedback out so i would say if you want to really get on with it you know if you know go after the bands you know meet the tour managers get yourself a business card but you, but your work is what does it it's not always a resume you know and like when i go to colleges and i talk like it's great that you have this degree but you know what you could go fucking wipe your ass with it because it's either you could do the gig or you can't like, I hate seeing kids out of school spending half their time under the desk looking at the lights to make, you know, use your fucking ears. And here's the best tip that I can give you. Don't fucking mix on headphones, okay? Unless you're handing out 10,000 pairs of fucking headphones of the same type, mix out of the fucking PA. Headphones should only be for, like, trying to find a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, and that's it. Or if you're, like, off-center from the PA and you can't really hear it. But I've gotten good at just looking at the meters and all that stuff. But, yeah, so offer to do front of house for bands, you know? Like, I'm sure there's bands in your area that are playing, like, the same three, four, five venues. Offer to kind of do it for free. Uh, so this way you get out of the venue that you're in and you kind of get experience going, like, <clears throat> on tour you know even though if it's you know on the other side of town where you walk into a venue do it for free like you know start out doing it for nothing and that's you know your because your paycheck is going to be your experience because in the long run it can pay off so you know there's a lot of ways there's no one way but put yourself out there you know be annoying you know i i i kind of got into uh an A-list studio <laughs> um, by uh, doing something pretty fucking retarded. I took a shoe box with my old pair of shoes. I took one of the shoes out and I put my resume and like, and I brought the, it to the studio and I left it on the dude's desk. By the way, it's the saxophone player from like for Billy Joel. <laughs> I, yeah. Great. You know, and he owns the studio with Rick Wake, you know, every Celine Dion, Mandy Moore, Mariah Carey, Jessica Simpson, JLo, Anastasia, like all of that stuff. So A-list studio, actually that's what dream theater does like all their records too. Um, but anyways, yeah. 
So I dropped off a shoebox with one shoe in it and the resume. About an hour later, I get the phone call. I, I don't get it. Like, what the fuck is, like, is this a joke? I'm like, yeah, I already got one foot in the door. Now I just got to get the other. Dude, <laughs> dude loved it. It was the most dumbest, corniest fucking thing ever, but I stood out. And that's how it happened. It's creative, I'll give you that. Yeah, like it's stupid and corny, but but think about it. We're stupid and corny. Like us like we were talking about Sukov before we went live. Like <laughs> that guy is out of his fucking tree, but he does great work. You know what I mean? So you, you know, it's definitely a job for a personality. Absolutely. Let's go All on, right. sorry. Oh, it's it's okay. All right, here's one from George, which is how important is panning in live sound and when and why do you typically use it or not use it? Yeah, panning is great. It's just, you know, creates depth, you know, localization, your stereo field, hopefully if you're on a stereo PA, but it could also hurt you because sometimes you got to remember, like I had kind of hinted this earlier, like with the guitar panning, you know, you got to sometimes remember it's like depending upon the PA or the room that you're using and that you're in, like if someone's standing on the far right side, like house right, you know, and like say somebody's on the far left and that guy's going to play a guitar solo and you have it totally panned to the left, well, now, everybody on the fucking right side of the venue is not going to hear it. So you got to be careful. You know, panning can, you know, fluctuate from venue to venue without a doubt. Uh, but it's, it's key, man. You know, when you do like a mono front fill like I do, like, you know, uh, I feed it directly from the left and right. So I sort of have like, you know, where you can check a mix in mono. But yeah, you know, panning is critical, you know. But uh, if you mix in mono and you, that's the best way to clean up the mix. <laughs> so, yeah. Great. And final question is from Elias Mapangos, which is, and I imagine you haven't dealt with this in ages, but uh, how would you deal with a local band who got drunk during the show and cranked the amps by themselves? I guess dealing with bands who adjust the volume. I deal with that. Uh, <clears throat> Napalm Death. Uh, like Miss used to play, but now this guy John's in there now. Uh, love the kid to death. But every now and then, like, they know, like, you know, uh, keep the volume down. Like, you'll get what you need in the monitor. But I know in these shitty little clubs, like, <laughs> there is no monitor. But, uh, yeah, you know, sometimes you get the bands. They just, you know, they go to 11. And then you got to kind of mix the stage bleed. There's nothing you can do about it. Like, there was one trick, like, when I used to do some of the local venue stuff, and this also ties into being, like, cool to every band. It's like, hey, guys, like, you know, particularly if you got, like, a metal band, like, guys, love your band. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I really want to make, you know, you sound good. I got this PA. Like, you know, let's control the volume. You know, you just, you, you got to, it's, it's 80% mental <laughs> being an engineer, 20% technical. So, you know, you got to kind of like put yourself in the artist's head in the right way. But if they're going to crank it up, man, there's nothing you can do about it. Like, that's just the way it is. Um, so just got to gotta adjust. Yeah. Um, I wish musicians out there with, you know, they don't like even with the monitors, everybody like, oh, turn this up, turn that up. Well, you do realize that the fader goes the other way. You know what I mean? Like, why don't you try turning down some stuff and then you don't have to crank the shit out of all the other stuff, you know, because then it's like your monitor's bleeding into his monitor or, you know, this fucking dude's guitar over here is basically, you know, being heard more on the right side of the stage than the left. You know what I mean? Like, there's, you know, 
turn them down. You know, everything doesn't have to be on 11. The best place for an amp, like when you, you turn it all the way down and then you start bringing it up and then like you reach that point where the amp just kind of jumps up in volume, that to me was like, that's the best place to have it. But nowadays, everything's fucking fractor, fractals and Kempers and all that other stuff. So <laughs> plug your fucking headphones in now. <laughs> well, Steve, dude, thank you so much for coming on and uh, being so open with your vast wealth of knowledge. I- I'm sure that we could bring you back on and talk for another 90 minutes about this stuff. Easy. Oh, I could do this for hours. I yeah. live this, man. <laughs> I so, don't have a personal life. So. None of us do. <laughs> well, thank you. Yo, thanks, man, for having me. And I'll uh, make sure that you guys get that info. But yeah, like if you guys out there ever have questions, don't feel intimidated. I mean, hit me up on the socials, bullshit, Steve Lagudi. Uh, you know, like I answer every single question that I ever get. Um, because for me, like when I was trying to learn like the internet and all other stuff and, you know, like I know how hard it is to try to find the answers and it may be intimidating, uh, to talk to people, ask me questions, you know, like I'm here, like I, you know, I will respond to every question that I get. If you're going to take the 10 minutes out of your day to fucking write me, the least I could do is like respond back. And Metallica taught me that. I will tell you that right now. <laughs> So that's cool. Always have time for other people, man. Seriously, because you never know. You could be the next big fucking engineer out there that I may want to aspire to be like, you know, so hit me up. Hit him up. Do it now. No, not now. I need a cigarette. (laughs) I'm just kidding. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Ibanez Guitars and Basses. Ibanez strives to make high-quality, cutting-edge musical instruments that any musician can afford and enjoy. Visit Ibanez.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.